have you ever had a guest that kind of after the interview it it really put into their perspective their music oh yeah it happens all the time uh, especially with people that i know actually oh interesting because, um when we, when we talk especially yeah, yeah. like i had a lot of people on from columbia and i've been at columbia for you know six plus years now and i still teach at columbia even yeah. though i graduated and a lot of my colleagues there you know, I kind of know them kind of in passing mostly, or when we talk, it's not really about music, it's about other things. Yeah. But when I'm having them on the show, it's like my first time I've actually sat with them for an hour and talked about their music. Uh, and then also like listening to a bunch of their music Yeah. before yeah. I had them on. It's like for you, I, I listened to like an hour of your music mm -hmm. before I had you on. Mm -hmm. And I rarely do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, can you imagine, I mean, yeah. besides going to a concert, like, do you ever just sit there and yeah, yeah. listen for, make a, make a concerted effort? I'm going to listen to this person's music. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't happen that often, I feel like. And it didn't happen with me until I started doing the show. I said, okay, let me actually listen to a bunch of pieces by this person. And let me get a feel for this person. I'm not going to think about any questions. Like, for example, I have this card here. There's, there's no questions the only thing on this card are the names of your pieces mm -hmm. and the excerpts that I cool. used from them. So wherever the conversation goes, it goes. If we talk about all three pieces, we talk about all three pieces. If we yeah. talk about one or two, cool. we talk about one or two. So that's kind of my approach to this whole thing. With people like you that, that I've never met in person, it's almost like, for me, I think the audience hasn't met you in person yeah. or anybody yeah. that I had sitting in that chair. So now I'm like an audience member with you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Totally. I actually want to play one of your pieces first. This is for Amplified Sinfonietta and Sampler. It's called Hasta Que No Pueda.
I would really like one day actually to have like a little uh, speaker thing here, or where yeah, we, so can, you can, get, where we yeah. can actually listen together, and like yeah. maybe there's a maybe we can film the reaction or, mm -hmm. or comment or <laughs> something. Cool, uh, yeah. But I just don't have the yeah, totally I don't have the mechanism to do that yet. Yeah. When I was listening to this piece, I actually didn't really read any of the program notes first, but I thought to myself, this sounds like a normal sound. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went back after I finished. I said, Oh, it is a normal sound. <laughs> it right? definitely has that normal sound kind of vibe to it you know yeah. aesthetic yeah but like with this piece and then after i read the program i said oh, okay that makes a lot of sense all the extra musical things going on i'd really love to know like how this all started and how you translated some of these extra musical ideas to music yeah um this piece was very hard to make because as you mentioned it's a very personal piece and i started writing it in last summer well, not the summer past year summer and around that time my mom was born with uh, hearing loss and that's something that's been present through all, all of our lives even when I was a kid that was one of my biggest fears the idea that you know she kept losing hearing inconsistently every year and so even when I was 10 or so I remember having that moment of you know there's probably going to be a moment where She's not going to be able to hear me or we're not going to be able to share a lot of like things together because of the hearing loss, even though, you know, hearing aids are getting way better. At the time, she didn't even have hearing aids, so that was even a, a, a more present. But that's always a little, been a little bit in the back of my mind, that fear. But that year, that summer, she actually did one of the routine tests, you know, that they do to see how um, things are. And she had actually lost, um, I think it was like 50% in one year at that point. And, and that was a little bit of a, oh God, you know, a uh, wake up call in, in that sense of, you know, this is happening and, you know, it's not necessarily inherently a bad thing, but it's something, it's a reality you have to deal with and you have to accept and kind of make the most out of it. So I was in that mindset a little bit when I started writing this, the first sketches. And it took a lot of back and forth because it felt really weird to talk about stuff like that in a piece. Usually a lot of my music, it's very personal, very vulnerable. And that's one of the things that I like the most when it comes to approaching a piece. But in this case, it was not necessarily about me. You know, it's affecting me as her son, but it's not about me. And that was a very hard decision to make. And I remember going back and forth a lot about, you know, how, or for example, am I going to write the piece about this, but not tell anyone, you know, mm. those are all decisions. And I knew that I wanted to do something with it because it was so present in my mind. And more than anything, it came from this idea of, I want to understand how she listens to the world. And I remember just Googling, like, to see if there was any website or anything, any software. And I remember finding this website where you can actually upload audio files and you can actually input the type of hearing loss that the person has, how long they've had it for, et cetera, and a lot of parameters. And it gives you an approximation of what this person uh, listens, uh, how they listen to the world. And so I uploaded a bunch of her favorite music. And I remember just having that moment of listening to this very muted, warped version of her favorite songs. And that was like, so impactful for me. So that was one of the first steps that I actually, my music deals a lot with other people's music. I don't know why. I'm just really upset with that idea of the interconnectedness between different kinds of music and how they speak to each other. 
So that's a, usually something that I do. But with this piece, I wanted to do the same idea, but coming from a point of view of uh, I want to, if this piece is about her and this idea again of where is the limits of me versus this is her story, I don't want to just pick songs that I like, you know, songs that we both liked. I wanted to pick songs that she really liked and that have a strong memory when I was a kid of that she would listen to it and she would really enjoy it, even if I'm not the biggest fan of the song, or I was <laughs> like, oh, how do I like deal with this song and, and for this piece? That's like how I first started, you know? I, I did, I always started with a playlist and it's just like my mood board to kind of like hear sounds and start envisioning things. And I just did it like a three hour playlist of songs that I remember that she really liked. And at that point I was already pretty sure that I was gonna do the piece about it, but it's still, had so many challenges in terms of how to put all of this together because most of them were power ballads and my music usually is pretty fast it's groovy <laughs> it's like oh god how am i gonna deal with this so yeah that was the first challenge and the first step on, into deciding about uh, how to approach this piece i mean i think it's even more vulnerable than talking about yourself in a way because you're mm -hmm. bringing somebody else's kind of you know, not issues but you know like they're the private things that maybe they don't want anyone else to know about at all i thought it was very moving and actually, I necessarily didn't, I probably didn't need to know the backstory. Mm -hmm. I had to enjoy the piece, but knowing the backstory makes me appreciate the piece actually more, to be honest, especially with the way, I mean, I only played a couple minutes of it, but especially the way the form moves throughout the piece and how you kind of get this kind of kaleidoscopic effect of things kind of becoming more in focus mm -hmm. and then they kind of get out of focus. You really hear that if you hear the entire, I think it's like an eight, nine minute piece. Yep. So you hear, you hear this kind of going back and forth. And this excerpt that I played to me was really striking because uh, you get these really super high violin microtones, right? That almost like hurts your ear. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, is that is that how she would hear like some of this music? Like she's actually hearing a lot of these higher frequencies? Yes and no. Um, uh, she doesn't have tinnitus, um, but my dad does. Um, and so that was like another layer to it because, you know, in my dad um, tinnitus, came later it was it was in until maybe five years ago that we realized that he had he had it i mean just hearing loss has been like very present thing in my family in the last couple of years um so that's why i added the the high violin part which is just artificial harmonics uh, very high and 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 also that in conversation with the uh, shaker almost like these just like super high frequency or and even noise or or shaker like a uh, like noise yeah 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 exactly well, yeah. like white noise kind of yeah feeling to it too there's a lot of these kind of white noise breath mm -hmm. sounds or various percussion sounds you use that kind of replicate a noise and and the high the high frequency like the quartales later on yeah yeah happen, yeah totally so, yeah yeah and and the whole idea was that you know, it's interesting to kind of like have these two things together because, you know, tinnitus like usually have like that super high frequency pitch completely uh, present in your life. And, but then hearing loss that my mom has, you start by losing the higher frequencies, of course, and like, most hearing loss. And the idea was in the piece to basically have a reverse process of hearing loss where you first start with the most muted version of it and then slowly you start regaining those frequencies back and so in the beginning all the winds all the strings they they are playing either half air 
uh, sounds or completely muted. And then of course, like as you mentioned, the shaker and the, the, the artificial harmonics are giving like these high frequencies. So there's no in between. It's very heavy in the mid, low, low frequency range and you get like that very muted sound and powerful sound in the lower register. But there's nothing in the mid-high range or what there is, it's not uh, necessarily something that you can easily discern. It's more focused on that noisy aspect of things, not um, as focused. And then as the piece progresses, you start adding that and then you have finally the winds actually play notes. <laughs> I mean, it reminded me of like watching, like, you know, when you're like in a, your Logic or your Pro Tools software yeah. and you're kind of playing around with the EQ settings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's literally what I was thinking of as I was listening to the piece. I was like, wow, I only hear like really low frequencies and yep. really high frequencies and nothing, which is kind of a strange experience. Totally. When yeah. you're listening kind of to disorienting. <laughs> especially an or this is basically an orchestral yeah. piece, you know, with 15 or so players. I mean, you expect to get the full frequency of sound like any piece you hear mm -hmm. with that number of players you usually get the whole range of sounds frequencies almost throughout the entire piece so to me it was it was strange to kind of hear the this eqing changing in and out that's why i thought maybe it didn't need to have that backstory you could if you're if you're hearing it more from that electronic music point of view mm -hmm. yeah um it also makes sense in that way. So when you're working with Alarmal Sound, I mean, what, what is it like working with them in general? Because I've heard, I've actually heard so many pieces mm -hmm. <laughs> by them. What's the process like of actually getting this thing? Because you have so many notational things happening. Do you even have to explain them to, to a band like this? Like what's the difference between working with them and maybe working with, I don't know, a Chicago Symphonetta or mm -hmm. something like a, a group that is way more conservative in their approach to, to music in general? Totally. I think it's, it's almost, to me, Alarmable Sound is the most small chamber music ensemble, but within the context of the large chamber music ensemble that you ever will ever encounter. Because it truly, even though you know it's a pretty big ensemble, the way that you work with them and the way they approach the music making process, it just doesn't feel, even though you know it's still like a limited amount of time, it still feels like you're having this personal touch and they're bringing something to the music. So of course I, you know, you do your due diligence in terms of explaining notation and stuff, but most of it, it just completely like work or snap into place almost immediately. And the things that were like not quite working, they also brought like so many suggestions. When we first did workshops, as I mentioned, the winds at the beginning of the piece have a lot of breathy sounds um, and these uh, non-pitched sounds. It was my first time working as extensively with that kind of notation and those kind of sounds and extended techniques. So I was just trying out things for the workshop. And yeah, even within that small workshop, all the wind players had so many suggestions and it was like, great. And again, yeah. things that normally happen when you're working with a quartet or stuff like that, you know, in, in orchestras, you should so rush the whole process because, you know, everything costs so much money that you don't have that. But I literally left the, that workshop feeling like, yeah, I just had a normal workshop with a chamber ensemble. And, and I think that personal touch of, you know, you actually get to know a little bit all the musicians I think it was very important uh, for a piece like this. The workshop that you're talking about, was that the Mizzou 
uh, workshop? No, or no, was that something no, different? That was, no, that was, this happened because of, they were going to be doing Donaka's piece. He had uh, Donaka then he... It was a Donica. faculty at Princeton. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and he's... Were you, where I didn't mention this yet, but you're, you're <laughs> a... Uh, yeah, he you're did... A, you're a fellow at Princeton right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, he did this large piece for them, and so they were going to be at the, in campus um, workshopping that piece because later they weren't going to premiere it in Germany, I think. And so they did uh, the readings of these pieces. They first did a workshop, and then they came back for the, the performance. So we had actually a good amount of time. We had the workshops in August, I think. And then we actually had the deadline to finish the piece on January or so. Uh, so I had a lot of time. I mean, my initial workshop, even though all the ideas were there, I basically threw out 95% of <laughs> it. Christ. And, and it was one of those things that it was like, you know, the idea, the concept is there, but the, the, the sound of it, it's just not clicking. You threw it out after you heard the first workshop or you threw it out before you got there? Uh, no, after I heard it, because that year was very hectic in terms of I, I had a, lots of projects going on. So I was going kind of like bouncing from thing to thing. And it was just after the workshop, I had like three other deadlines. So this was in the back of my mind, but I wasn't actively working on it. Yeah. So after that, I remember that after I finished most of my deadlines, I still had only like a month and a half to finish the piece. And, you know, it's 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 awesome to get to work with them. They're incredible ensembles. It's you want to do a good job. And and it, I had a lots of pressure in terms of delivering something that I felt good with, that I felt like happy with it and that I could connect with. And I just like kept listening back to the workshop. I'm just like, this is not it. And again, like the concept was there. And I, and I think that's something that I, I'm a person that writes like beginnings first. And if I don't click, like I don't love the beginning, it's very hard to, for me to continue. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. And I need to have something that I feel very very passionate about and i just didn't have that with the workshop the, the things were kind of there but they were i don't know they were passionate of, about the concept yeah the, exactly the concept yeah. I, knew, I knew that that was not gonna yeah change. I'm, the, I'm the same way if, mm -hmm. if, I, if i'm in love with the concept i don't care how it, how how it goes really i need to make sure that the music follows the concept like i'm not going to throw away the concept is what i mean yeah, yeah like, i'm yeah, not exactly. going to be halfway through and say okay the concept sucked like yeah. no it mm -hmm. was it was because because i sucked at executing it yeah yeah you know, yeah i'm not gonna blame the concept i'm gonna blame myself which is which is kind of uh, dangerous <laughs> in a way but, uh. no but but there's a I, I think there's a distinction sometimes you can have a solid concept that's just not quite working out yet uh, musically and i mm -hmm. think those are two very different things i think a music should be able hopefully to stand on its own two legs, musically speaking, right. and that concept should just enhance that. And that's what I felt with the initial material that I had. It was a concept, it's like, I'm 100% happy with the direction that I'm gonna take this piece, this is what I wanna do. But there was, I mean, from the beginning, there was like the, the pianist is using a MIDI controller that is just triggering samples. That was always there, but the samples themselves and Basically, the idea, the, the unique thing about the piece, it was the orchestrational idea first, and also the idea of the sampling. And I think one of the things that changed the most when I started actually working on the piece was to put that at the forefront. That's something that I've been kind of relentless lately. This idea of what's at the core of this piece and just trimming all the fat, you know? You just want hyper-focus as much as possible. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. But you want to... to 
have all the arrows pointed towards that direction. And that was the hardest thing to figure that out. And, and I remember I gave myself five days because, you know, I already had a very limited amount of time. And it was like, if in five days I cannot come up with something, that five I, days. Yeah, if I cannot come up if I cannot come up with a with at least like fifteen or thirty seconds of music, then I'm like, this is it. And then I'll It's an ultimatum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically. Yeah. And I was like, then I will continue with the material from the workshop, I guess. It was the last day. And I remember that I wrote the literally the first sixteen to twenty measures. And I wasn't entirely convinced. And I had, uh, we were talking about before <laughs> sitting down here about coffee at 8 p.m. I was having coffee at 8 p.m. And then I came back. I always, I kind of, I don't have a good mindset. I don't know if this happens to you. When I'm listening to a playback or something, or if I'm playing on the piano, I'm a terrible pianist, but I try my best. I don't have a clear mindset if I'm playing it or if I'm in a space of work. I usually export things or record myself and then do other stuff while listening to it. And then that's when... I know if I like something or not. I remember feeling kind of like, oh, there's, there's something here. But then I exported it and then I listened to it and it's like, oh yeah, this is it. And that was that moment of... Exporting, when you say exporting it, you mean the, the just the sampling sounds or like the sampler plus whatever it was, MIDI instruments no, you're using? No, it was just the sampler. I came up with the which is the initial gesture in the piece. And I was like, that's pretty neat. But then another friction that I've had, I've been working more and more extensively with electronics is that, you know, it's, it's always hard and people often talk about that mixing electroacoustic music, but it's, it's, it's one of those things that even though people talk a lot about it and, and, and that's one of the biggest discussions, still very hard to get. And at that point, I already started working like the instrumental part. And, but still, I was basically, I had a setup where I could hear like both the sampler and the MIDI mock-up. At the same time, so I was hearing both, but things were not necessarily clicking yet. And it wasn't until I had that cup of coffee that I kind of like started digging a little bit more into the orchestration side of things. And then suddenly I had the moment of, yeah, this is what the instrumental writing is. Because it's almost like I have like two aha moments usually when I'm working in electricity music. It's first how the electronics are going to sound or vice versa. Sometimes it starts the other way around. And then how are the instruments are going to relate to this? And it's almost like two separate conceptual ideas of what's their language, you know? And, and it's very hard to get those right. And I think for oh, this absolutely. piece, I feel pretty good with the results. Well, I thought it was terrific, but you have this other piece too, which uses electroacoustic you know, mm -hmm. elements, but this piece in particular, you didn't have to worry about any of the live acoustical instruments. You can just focus on the sound itself yep. that you're producing in the box and then having players realize that. So I wanna play a couple minutes from Artifacts, which is a piece for laptop, keyboard, live electronics and visuals.
mean, before we were talking about concept, you were talking about your mom and the hearing loss, of course. Here, the concept is completely different. It doesn't even, yeah. it doesn't seem as personal, but maybe I'm wrong because this is the part of the piece where you're, this person is typing away <laughs> uh, and he's making a mistake and then kind of fixes himself. And then there's like quotation also of lists doing these runs yeah. there in the very beginning. And then list kind of comes back the like or the ghost of list comes back at the very end you can kind of tell it was by the same guy because you know you have the the, the pulse element yep. you have yep. the a lot of the the samples sounded actually quite similar between the two pieces mm -hmm. yeah but the the concept was completely couldn't be more opposite unless I'm, I'm getting something wrong here no yeah this piece a lot of the things that i've been doing start shifting i came across um a composer remy sue fantastic composer, uh, currently based in Canada. And I remember coming across a piece of his uh, new notations. And like five, seven years ago, I remember being fascinated by this piece. Later, um, I performed the piece and came in contact with Remy. And, you know, it's a piece that's very heavy on the electronics. It was a finalist for the Godamus Award. And it basically, it's just for uh, up to four performers with game controllers interacting mm. in this virtual environment where everything you do turns into sound. And I remember when we were setting up the piece because it's a pretty tech heavy piece, he mentioned this idea of like the title and notations, this idea of the visual environment is the score, you know, it's this almost like a feedback loop where everything you're seeing, everything you're interacting with is the score. And that just somehow got stuck in my head this idea that you know this this the score in this case artifacts has a score but it's almost working with the visual element because what happens when the performance you need to type these things where it gets glitchy and there it's hard to see and there's a pressure of everything and there is this element that it's almost like an interact building an interactive system that informs the music and so that was like the initial idea for the piece so the idea is just to be clear the idea is writing a, a, a physical score right mm -hmm. that interacts in some way with what we see visually with the, on the projector and that they, they they have to kind of talk to each other is that is that am i getting that right yeah 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 no, it's, I mean, wow it's, it's interesting yeah. yeah it's almost like the score it's there but in more more than anything this course therefore the 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 piece has two type of musical material one that it's like more straightforward uh, writing and then the typing tests and for the typing test the score it's almost trivial in a way it's almost just a thing for the performance as a guide to know what's happening but more than anything all the magic of the piece happens in the visuals and, and, and how that affects the, the, there's a lot that if you just see the score, you're completely missing about the piece. And when I first started working in this piece, I also had a similar element of, I often have these moments of, I have this idea, then I start working on it, and then I have another idea, and then I was like, oh, am I gonna change it? And usually once I start working on the piece, like actually writing something that I like, I don't change the concept anymore. But initially this piece, I was like, okay, <laughs> This was also during the same hectic year. I was like, I don't have a ton of time to work on this piece. So I'm going to do something simple. It was going to be just a sampling piece with very rhythmic and stuff. And then I started thinking about that whole idea again of the, the interactive system and the Remy's you thought of, you know, building like interactive systems and, and how that affects music and, and the, the idea of the score in a digital way. 
And I was like, oh, what if I have like this like pass or fail thing, which is something that I realized he, uh, Remy also does in another, uh, another piece of his. At the time, I didn't realize it. But maybe it was subconsciously in my mind. And, and again, I gave myself another ultimatum. It's like, I'm just going to prototype this. I'm, I, I did the visuals and a lot of how the piece is working. It's a software called Touch Designer. What's the software called? Uh, Touch Designer. Touch Designer. Yeah. How do you spell uh, Signer? Uh, designer. Oh, designer. Touch designer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. And I never heard of it. Yeah. Okay. No. It's it's a really neat software. It's basically you can. It's mostly uh, used to do real time visuals. A I'll lot put of people, that down in the description below too. Yeah. In case yeah. People want to check. Yeah. That no. Out. It's it's great, and it also has a great free trial. You can use most of the stuff just with mm -hmm. some limitations. So it's similar. It's imagine kind of like Max MSB, but for visuals. Um, but you can do way more than that and so I instead of using like jitter on yeah Max exactly MSP. it's a, yeah it's similar to jitter but you know that's the whole thing so it's um yeah. more in depth in terms of the the visual aspect really okay yeah no, i didn't but, know that yeah yeah it's great and you can it has a lot of tools to connect with ableton so in the piece the way everything is working it's both of those so software in tandem it basically touch designer it's sending information to ableton and the everything that the performer is doing in the midi controller it's being sent to Ableton and vice versa, and then Ableton sends information to touch, and then it's just like this feedback loop of information. So let me get this straight. So there's, first of all, there's two keyboards, right? Yeah. So you got the piano the piano keyboard that we yep. all know, and of course the computer keyboard that yep. we all know. So these two things are, at these two are things, where are they being attached to? So are they both going into Ableton? The MIDI controller, it's going to Ableton. Yeah. And then the laptop, it's working, uh, sending information to Touch Designer. And then Touch Designer sending information to Ableton. Okay, got it. Okay, so the, the actual computer keyboard, that is not really interacting with Ableton. Well, at the Directly. end, yes, because okay. Touch Designer sends information. <laughs> oh, Lord. Too. Yeah, so it's, again, it's, I'm obsessed with that idea of feedback loop. Right, of course, going yeah, back because, and forth between and the systems. And for systems. example, the MIDI controller, it's going straight into Ableton, but then Ableton is sending information back to Touch. So it's, it's, it's that kind of like cost, like domino thing, you know? I got to ask you something then, because I love, first of all, I love this piece. Uh, I like all your music, actually, but this piece, it got me laughing, too. That's yeah, the, that yeah, was the yeah. other thing, which is hard to do in music. Do you ever wonder, because I just, I'm asking this mainly for me, I suppose, because this happened to me a couple of weeks ago where this player wanted to play one of my pieces that had electronics. And by the way, the electronics were way simpler than what, than what <laughs> you were doing. But we just couldn't like figure out like the patch was the max patch I was using was like almost eight years old. Oh yeah, I had a and with all the updates that. and so on, it, like I just couldn't get it to work. And I just told him, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I don't have. I spent like a day on this, and I, I still haven't figured it out. And I, I just can't spend like another day or two. Like mm -hmm. I need to move on. But the other things I got going yep. on, I can't back everything up for this one performance. Do you ever have that uh, worry or do you say that, you know, this, I'm fine with this piece just getting played once. I got the documentation, like this great documentation for it. Does that cross your mind or just oh. saying, you know what, I just, I just want to make sure I get this first performance down and to hell with what happens after. If it, if somebody wants it, great. If not, I'm fine with that too. Yeah, a little bit of both. And this is something that yesterday I was talking about. <laughs> oh yeah. With a friend. Yeah. It's it's very hard. Um and I think there are two ways of approaching it. When I was making this piece, and I think it's interesting to compare like the uh, alarm will sound piece and this one, because alarm will sound piece, I can send that to anyone because it's working on Ableton 
which you can get a free trial version of it and run it. It's almost like a plug and play thing. You know, there's a little bit of the barrier to entry if you're not familiar with DOS at all, but I, you know, that's something that most people like can figure out or have someone that can help them with that. Yeah, because with the art, with the, um, with the alarm will sound piece, basically you have the sampler programmed, but yep. you just like send a file yep. and send all the file. sounds are already connected. Like you just plug the, the MIDI controller, yep. the keyboard in. Yep. And like, as soon as the, whoever is playing it, those are the correct sounds. They don't have to go into Ableton. Yep. Move. Maybe they have to move the like volume sliders around. Yeah, Maybe exactly. they have to mix it with the hall. Yeah, yeah. But as if you have like a sound person, like you're good. It's just plug and yeah. play, get the outs. But the artifacts is not like that no, at all. No, artifacts is yeah. way more complicated. And right. when, you, when you're working with that type of pieces, you have to, you know, there are ways of like making that easier if you want uh, someone to perform the piece while you're not there. But not only that, the other thing is how demanding the piece is in terms of tech, uh, in, in terms of hardware. I have a pretty decent laptop and mine could run it pretty well, but you know, I tried it in some of the performers' laptops and their laptops just couldn't run it because it's a little bit intensive on the CPU. So there's also that added element that there is, there's some like tech specs things. So I think with those pieces, you have to see, I, I think like always my default when composing and when working with tech is go to the most basic idea first. If what I, the concept that I have and the vision for the piece just demands to, you know, have a slightly more difficult approach or something that I know it's gonna kind of make it more difficult for people to get into the music, then okay, I'll, I'll go to that level or whatever. But it's always, I always try to make it as simple as possible. Most of my pieces start that way. And and this one, the vision that I had of the pass and fail is just, there is a certain no other way. If there was any simpler way of doing it, I would have done it. Uh, and there maybe is. Uh, I'm not also like very good at coding. I'm a complete beginner. I just been learning uh, uh, as I make these projects. So I, in, in this case, they perform it without me and it was, I basically had to, they had to download, we got it running, but they had to download like remote access software so I could access to their computer. So when there I was, was another element too. Yeah, so I had to kind of like set it up because it was another person's laptop and I had to kind of like make sure that everyone, everything is installed, the correct version, so you don't have like the max thing. <laughs> Suddenly like things are not working. So there are a lot of moving parts and I think that's totally cool if, again, if the concept that you want requires that. But if it doesn't, I think you just should make as approachable as possible, you know? And I'm still like even trying to figure that out in a way to kind of like how to package something in a way that it's accessible. I think for example, like someone that you had on the show recently, like uh, Christopher Theron is really good at that. A lot of piece, electronic pieces, you know, the, the max patches are built in a way where it's very easy to, and it's good at keeping that up to date. And I think like electronics can be very accessible, but again, to a certain degree, I think that there are some things that are some people are going to be more intimidated by, but that's part of it, you know? Yeah. I mean like, well, Chris Cerrone is really good at like what you were saying, like finding what is like the simplest idea mm -hmm. of a piece. And then I'll make the max patch around it rather yeah. than like, okay, I like this. I like this. I like this. And then like figuring out what the max patch is later. Yeah. Yeah. And he even told me one of his pieces, uh, Hoyt Skemmerhorn, which is a, mm -hmm. his yep. like famous piano electronics piece. He actually had an engineer tell him this piece doesn't have to be played with live electronics the piece is actually supposed to be for piano and live electronics. 
it, it, you need like a microphone in the piano mm. and it picks up the sound and it you know it, it does its granulation thing but the engineer told him you know we can just we can just make this piano in fixed media mm. we don't even need to put a mic in the piano which i thought was very interesting yep. so he even somebody else that wasn't chris <laughs> made a, found a way to make it even make it simpler yeah right? but it yep. was somebody else that that took the initiative mm. i guess since the piece is known and people want to play it without with the at least friction as possible they could yeah, um, they could I, figure that out. And I think, like, again, if I probably if you put your mind to it, there are ways of packaging a lot of right. like even artifacts in a more uh, simpler way of like just inst like an installer and something. But that's another thing similar right. to what you're doing is like how much time are you going to spend doing that? Right. It's complicated. But I think the sense, I think what people sometimes lose when they're thinking about like composing, right, is that there really is a sense of experimentation here. I mean, we really, really are earnestly trying to make new sounds yeah. or, and not even just new sounds, but new experiences. And I think that is one of the things that make what we do, especially what you do specifically, very different than like, say, someone that goes into, com not to knock commercial music or anything right, yeah, like yeah. this, but there is a very different function yeah. for doing that kind of music versus like what we're doing, which is like literally trying to create new experiences. And then what usually happens is the best of those ideas they start coming up 10, 15, 20 years later in the commercial music. Yeah. And there are a lot of examples of that in history. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, one off the top of my head is like Jerry Goldsmith, mm -hmm. uh, his score for the planets. Yep. I mean, it's all like, you know, Ligeti and uh, it's all and like that kind of influence. It's all like uh, Stravinsky and stuff like that. And the general populace doesn't really know that yep. stuff. But then after they hear, they hear the planets, it's like, oh, they're, or Planet of the Apes, excuse me, the Planet yeah, of yeah, the yeah. Apes. All of a sudden, oh, uh, those sounds they belong uh, mm -hmm. in in our in our general human psyche they're not these foreign sounds that mm -hmm. nobody wants to listen to yeah totally and i and i think like something when you're working a little bit in and i'm not saying like i'm the most cutting edge person but at least i think you can be cutting edge within your own kind of like yeah. an environment and when i'm working for example a piece like artifacts which fell a little bit of uncharted ground for me because again all the coding and stuff it's like oh, me trying to figure out there was a lot of that piece that changed two, three weeks before the performance because uh, we basically had a workshop period with the performers and it was awesome. I had these ideas, but it wasn't as interactive and stuff because I was coming again from the point of view of I'm trying to make this as simple as possible. Again, the piece started as this is just going to be sample similar to the alarm will sound, just plug and play. Then I was like, okay, the test, let me add that. Yeah. And then, but the, it wasn't just, it just, wasn't as effective. And then we started coming up with all these ideas of, oh, what happens if I get three things wrong? And I was just, it was almost like we had rehearsal and then it was just me all day getting all of these features in. So there was this very tight like feedback loop in terms of how we're implementing things to the piece. And even though that made the piece what it is and, and it's I'm really proud of that piece, you know, it just makes things more complicated and also adds to the to the idea of had the barrier to entry a little bit because not only you know i'm working implementing this stuff in such a small amount of time so maybe you're not approaching it from the from that perspective of like everyone can do this so then i'm adding stuff that requires yeah. more tech blah blah, blah. <laughs> so it just at the end of the day it's almost like this experiment that it's in a way meant to be shared with those performers and and again I'm sure um, that this piece can be performed by other people, but 
I don't know, it's almost like this memento of how this piece was created. And I think, you know, you always have to allow some chaos in your process. Not everything can be like super um, premeditated. And, and I think what, the material that I came up with on my own was it's so much more boring compared to the final product, even if there are like those complications at the end of the day tech wise, that it's just, I would take that version any, any day, you know, it's even, even if it adds those layers. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, this just reminds me of another piece of yours for, this is uh, this is the piece, my voice is the broken chorus. Yep. And the reason what you said reminds me of that, it's for amplified soprano and electronics. Yep. I actually perceive this piece as something that actually could be played quite easily. Oh yeah. Because you just have one soprano yep. and then you have a computer, basically. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's much else going on no, as far no, as it's just electronics. Yeah, awesome. So let's hear a couple minutes of that. play the slow movement and the slow movement is called waning crescent but you knew that <laughs> it's for everybody else actually i forget the movement. oh really yeah sometimes the, i actually do too yeah for the longest <laughs> just didn't time, want to admit it yeah i have other names and every time i'm sending that piece or something i have the separate audio files like which movements wish <laughs> that's funny this piece is very different the, the other two pieces are kind of pulse based yeah. and this was this is like straight up like c natural yeah. minor uh, very beautiful and very uh, visceral and uh, I mean there's a lot of adjectives I could use about it but this piece itself did you I don't remember the order that you wrote all these pieces but they seem like they were kind of written within like a two-year period or something right I think a year album. or one year period yeah. yeah yeah this piece was the first one in those like well technically that armable sound was before that the workshop so I always had those sounds in my head, the sampling and stuff. And this one was the first one that I finished in that kind of like stretch of time where I started getting more into this sound. And then the artifact was one of the most recent I finished that uh, in June, I think. So yeah, this piece, definitely a more simple approach in terms of electronics. Again, like 
it's not about making the most complicated thing. If it works in the most simple way, it works. But the interesting thing about this, it's, it had a similar approach to the artifacts piece in the sense that I remember the idea of the piece initially came because I listened to uh, Flo's uh, Florent um, album, uh, his newest album, and the title track, it has this basically this hawking texture with himself. He's playing bass, but he's hawking with like samples version of like other bass sounds. And I was I was so like mesmerized by that texture. And we were talking about it and he was like, you know, I want to do that live, but it's very challenging to do live. Um, and I'm trying to figure it out. And I just remember kind of like, oh, I want to do that live, you know, with fixed electronics, if you build it around it, not build it necessarily as a studio piece you can probably do that live. So that was like the original idea. So so what so what is it exactly? You have a oh, yeah. you have a base, you like like a like a upright base, electric base, a double base, yeah. Double base and then what is I, I don't really understand cuz I yeah. haven't heard it, but what what's happening around it exactly? Yeah, it's basically and there are a lot of layers because again, this is mostly built as as an album piece. But the main idea, especially the hawking, is there is the all these he's playing and and he's hawking against little samples of him also playing the bass but they're just samples oh so they are samples of him playing but they're yep. kind of the they're hawking the, the rhythms are kind of overlapping yeah over yeah. each other okay and it's all fixed fixed media fixed yeah yeah exactly it's There's meant no to be as a yeah as, I see. Okay. As something you listen to in an album so he was trying to figure out like oh can i actually play this can i build a version where this is playable and I'm actually not sure if you did. Playable in a live setting. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, in a studio recording, it's pretty easy, relatively yeah, exactly. speaking, to yeah, put yeah. this all together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I build a piece, like, and it's a challenging thing to do, to have, like, that hawking texture um, against yourself. Um, so I build a piece around that. I remember doing the first couple of sketches, and and I send them to uh, Charlotte Mundy, the, the, the singer who printed the piece, and and we talked a lot again like I, I always try to really get to know the performers and we started like talking about like music and stuff and 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 also about how we felt about the the initial sketches and we started talking about like oh maybe a different aesthetic for it and so the piece started changing a lot and it started actually to getting a little bit harsher in terms of sound and and which it's from where the first and third move, movement come from, and then I was really I really wanted to have like a slow movement that was just very beautiful. She's a, she's a fantastic singer. So that second movement comes as kind of like this contrasting idea in the middle, where there's still like all, all the like electronics are layered are just her singing, but this time I'm just making like digital tape loops. It's just this plugin that allows you to to loop things in very imperfect ways. All those samples you're talking about, those are all her singing. Yep. So you recorded her separately in the studio or wherever it was in her apartment, in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and that was kind of the the analogous idea with the with the bass that she heard, yeah. the upright bass. Yeah, and basically what I, I asked her to, because I wanted to do the hawking, but I also wanted to embrace all the timbrical possibilities of the voice. So I gave her a list of syllables and sounds to make. And it just she uh, sang every she sang every that list in like five or six notes, and then it kind of like in a sampler I, um, I uh, repitched to whatever I needed, 
Um, so yeah, that's all I had. So in my computer, there's still like a, a file where it's just like a keyboard, but depending on how, like the velocity, how hard you press the key, they're like different Charlotte's like timbre sounds. So you can like play a piano piece, but it's just- So you adjusted the velocity of each of the samples too, and that, that would that play a different That gives you sample? the different, yeah, it's the same really? note, but it will give you, for example, like a ah, ka, p sound. Um, right. So I had to, basically I did like a chart like from here to here in terms of velocity it's are the pitch uh, sounds and then on pitch sounds so when i was writing the piece it was very hard because like it's easy to write a hocket it's difficult to write a hocket that's singable you know that you can right. actually sing but those are more in the first and last movements right yeah exactly but, uh, yeah 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 but and here yeah. in the second because oh, they yeah, only, yeah, they only right. heard the yeah, second yeah, movement. Totally. Yeah. yeah i forgot about that um, in the second movement, it's basically about these layers of yep. these, it's just like literal layers of her yep. voice. And then you have her actual voice singing over it mm -hmm. with this like C minor yep. sort of yep. thing. But was her voice over, over all this stuff, was it pro not processed? Was it processed or was yes there anything no. going on? I got that plugin that I mentioned that I kind of remember the name, but it's basically mimicking when you make uh, cassette tape loops. Okay. Um, and I, I came to this idea because I have a friend, uh, Justin Wright, who is also in the doctor program at Princeton, and he is obsessed with these cassette loops. And he was showing them on, on, on to us, and, and they sound amazing because they, they, first of all, once you transfer something to cassette, it has, uh, there's a little bit of downgrade in terms of mm -hmm. like quality, it gets this lo-fi sound. And also when you loop it, there is not like when you're working a DAW where you can perfectly snap where you want the loop to happen. You kind of like approximate, and sometimes you even get these imperfections when it's looping because the material, the tape you use to mm -hmm. to to put the light, the loop together. So I was like real into it, but I was like I'm not gonna learn how to do tape loops <laughs> just for this. So I, I there is this plugin that kind of like imitates that sound. So I asked uh, Charlotte to send me like small snippets of her like singing like different notes, different textures. And I just put a lot of that into in that uh, plugin and I just started recording like tons of layers. It wow. was like, there's a session where there's probably over half an hour of just like tiny textures and stuff where, and then I like I record two and then we layer those two and stuff. And then just kind of like keep coming up with ideas. And so I ended up in that kind of like woozy kind of like sound world that you hear and it was, I don't know, it was, it was surprisingly like hard to compose because I don't, as you mentioned, most of my music is very rhythmic and this is very uh, lyric. And for years I've always said, oh, I cannot write vocal music. That's something that I cannot do. I cannot write melodies. I feel the same way. Well, yeah. not, I, can, I feel like I can write melodies, but the vocal stuff. No, I, yeah, it was. I always no, for, shy away from that too. Yeah, for yeah. me, it was like two things. Um, I just didn't feel like I could approach in a way that felt compelling to me, and in a felt in a in a way that felt idiomatic for the boys. Those were the two main things. So when I started writing this. I was like, I'm actually going to write something that feels like a vocal piece mm -hmm. because the first and third movement are, you know, a very idiosyncratic in, uh, way of approaching vocal music. And this one, I was just wanted to write something that almost felt like an aria. So that's where a lot of like that uh, and started, like how those ideas started like uh, happening. And then when I started uh, writing it, I, I, I was in Puerto Rico at the time, it was in my family, and I was just mostly kind of like 
I had the textures, but I started playing on guitar, like a lot of the, and, and it was interesting because I, because I approached it through the loops, a lot of the harmony came as a result of that. And so I started like thinking about like those chord progressions from those tiny loops. I was not necessarily thinking about like chords or functional harmony or anything like that. I was just putting like things after each other because they sounded cool. And then after that, I had like a good sense of the sound world that I wanted. I started writing down like the harmony and stuff and the, the chords. And then after that, I completely turned off my computer. I wrote the whole thing in guitar and I was singing on top of it. I'm also a terrible singer, terrible pianist and terrible singer. So it was a really fun experience. Well, I'm the same way. Yeah. <laughs> and I try and I do both when I compose. So yeah, I'm exactly. Right, I'm right with you. Yeah. So I was, uh, I wrote this movement kind of like me uh, singing while playing guitar because, you know, MIDI voices are terrible. They really give you like a really throws you off a lot. I think like MIDI has come very far in terms of like music notation software. Uh, vocal, no, vocal oh, is it's absolute trash. Yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> that's the thing. So, like, and and if you're like writing something that does not require a lot of that, then that's cool. But when you're writing something that it lives and dies in that lyricism, yeah, you can like have such a false sense. And that's like sense of how it sounds. That's why I completely turned it off and wrote the whole thing by hand. And I remember after I finished writing it, I you know I kind of like came back and then kind of start sorting through that nightmare uh ableton session of all of the like half an hour of like text me just like trying to build the corporation that i that i had like written down but now with these imperfect loops it was very challenging to get everything right and so i built the electronics um and i remember i sent her uh the score and and i was like hey like if you have like 15 minutes can you do like a reading of this just to see if this works because i remember saying like oh i think this is going to completely change because i think this is not working and i but i was like i already spent like a lot of time writing this i'm just going to try it out and then she sent me back the recording and i was like oh wait this sounds good <laughs> <laughs> so it was one of those i one of those few moments i think where i completely changed my mind usually if i'm not convinced of it when i'm writing it 99% of the time, the performance does not actually convince me. Even if I'm using like MIDI mock-up or not, I need to be like 100% into like what I'm writing at the moment. But this was one of the few examples where I wasn't sure. And I think like, I'm not sure if it's vocal music or what, but there was something about it that clicked so much uh, once I heard it. As well, it's also the way she's singing. I mean, she has a particular way yeah. of singing as well. And I feel like vocalists especially the more they kind of delve out of the bel canto kind of style totally, that you yeah. get to hear their personality a little bit yeah. more. And, and maybe that's what I, like I noticed, like if you look at the score by itself, I mean, she's doing a few more things than what the score mm -hmm. is saying. Yeah. Yeah. And that maybe added to what you liked about what you heard. I mean, yeah. I, at least I liked it. You know? no, 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 no. Yeah. And there were like, even like some things that she changed, like there were supposed to be this all like, mm, like uh, from muted to like open uh, vowel singing. And she actually did like us, I think, to get that change of timbre, but also like make it speak a little bit more. So there were all these tiny stuff uh, that, that I, I think like uh, she made like so many fantastic changes. Um, and and yeah, but at the same time, like I wrote, uh, there's a piece by uh, also incredible composer James Diaz that he uh, wrote for uh, uh, Tack Ensemble where Charlotte uh, sings. And I remember like listening to this piece like years ago and, and I completely fell in love with the vocal part. 
and and I remember kind of like there's even like kind of like a, not a quote because it's just a major second, but there's like an inflection, like a major second gliss that came from that James Dias piece. So yeah, this piece like a little bit was that movement in particular was me challenging to get that vocal writing and then to make it sound like this is a voice and all the runs at the end are uh, kind of me just writing something that I, if you look at all my scores, you're never ever gonna find him <laughs> writing like that. And and it was it was challenging, but yeah, it was a, a little bit of a kind of like, a, I guess like a test for myself. Like, oh, can I write something that's lyrical and works? Well, that's why I wanted to include this one. Yeah, yeah. I, it was surprising different. to me. And I think this was maybe the last thing I heard too. I said, oh, whoa, this is like something yeah. very different that I didn't expect you to write. Yeah, and it also yeah. kind of shows this idea of, you know, people kind of, some, and I, I see this happening a lot nowadays. I think just because there's so many of us out there, actually a lot of like people kind of pigeonhole, like, okay, this, this person does this, this person does that. But, I mean, this kind of thing that we're doing here with your music, there's a lot of things that you could do. The vocal writing, the sampler, mm -hmm. the writing for like, a, like an orchestra, basically. Mm -hmm. There's all these things that we as composers are kind of expected to be able to do. Uh, these days yeah and it's amazing how many of us are kind of out there doing it it's like yeah. it's really inspiring at least for me yeah no no and it's sometimes it's hard because then you know people like always try to box your career into one idea like this is the orchestra composer or whatever right and and as you say like all of like especially i think right now all of us like have worked to a certain degree into all of these fields we've done a little bit of electronic orchestra and, and you know sometimes you find your thing that you want to specialize more on uh but i think for now similar to what we're talking about electronics for example i think i'm i'm almost embracing it as a kind of like an ongoing experimentation even though you know the things that excite me the most right now are in more in the electroacoustic world but I, there's so much, I've actually been writing a lot of like orchestra music lately and it's always refreshing. And at the same time, one classic thing, I don't know if this happens to you when I'm working orchestra piece, I'm like, I wish this was a chamber piece. And when I'm working <laughs> electronics, I'm like, oh, it would be so easy if I was writing just a acoustic piece. And there is a lot of that back and forth in terms of your own thoughts. But I think it's very important to keep that present and to exercise all of those muscles a little bit and kind of like seeing how everything influences each other. You yeah, know? That's kind of funny. I actually, actually, I sometimes I do have that thinking, but it's usually like I'm like two thirds of the way done with a piece and then I'm like thinking about the next piece. That's oh, usually what happens. Yeah, yeah. It's not like I wish this piece was something else. It was oh, like, oh man, really? I, I see the finish line Lucky on this you. one. What, what, <laughs> uh, let me think about the next one. But I'm like, wait, 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 no, stop doing that. Yeah, like, yeah, I just, yeah. You got to focus on this one, you know. You got to give your effort to this one, and then you can do the next one. It's not a, it's not a race. Yeah. You know, and I think that's also kind of an ongoing issue too in our field. Is like people feel like they're in a race to, oh to yeah. like, you know, I got to do the next thing because I got to win this contest, then I got to do the this grant. And this, oh it's yeah. It's like no, just kind of focus. It's it's actually since I've slowed down a little bit with the, I mean, I still write a lot, but compared to like when I was in school, I mean, I was like, it was a rat race, especially at Juilliard. It was like, as soon as one piece is done, the next day yeah. I'm writing a brand new piece yeah. and yeah. for a completely different ensemble. But nowadays I'm like, you know, I write, I finish a piece and sometimes I don't write for like another month or even two months sometimes. Mm -hmm. and I'm like totally cool with it. And I, I trust that I can get back into that mindset of writing that next piece. Like yeah. it used to be like, oh my God, if I don't write for a week, I'm gonna yeah. forget how to yeah. write. 
but I don't know, I don't know if you deal with these issues, but uh, it, it sounds like it sounds like you're more the type that I'm writing. A, you're writing a lot of pieces at once, so you maybe maybe you don't have those periods where you're not writing. It's I'm 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 currently going through a transformation process. <laughs> I'm, I've always you know ever since I was a kid I've always been like really attracted to this idea of like always like be working on like something and always be like tinkering with something. Um, so a lot of that started naturally sipping into like the way I compose. So I'm always I have definitely that those moments of like where every single day and as soon as I finish a piece like literally yesterday I didn't finish a piece but I, I finished um, I, uh, some sketches for a workshop and literally after I finished I was like oh I want to write like the next thing I started writing the next thing and it's like almost like an anxiety thing this year I actually started reframing that mindset um, as I mentioned last year was very hectic and and even though I did like lots of projects that I'm extremely happy with but I think right now the way I feel like I want to slow down a little bit and and work dedicating more time to each project and and the orchestra piece that I finished on August was the first piece that I dedicated like such a long amount of time. I mean, I usually compose fairly fast. First of all, I, I was kind of like afraid of spending like kind of like dedicating so much time to this one project. I feel like we are slowing down so much. And I've actually been enjoying it more and more, but it's hard to, I don't know how was your like transition in terms of that, but I've actually been enjoying it, but it's, you still have that like remnant, like anxiety from the rat race kind of like mindset. Um, and I'm trying to stay away from that and trying to focus each piece more as a, you know, as a statement, whether it succeeds or not, because I don't think you know, every piece is gonna be like incredible, but at least that's the way I want to approach yeah. it. Kind of like, I'm gonna do my, very best and if it works out sometimes things do not click and that's okay um, um for example like the alarm was on piece was building on top of ideas that i previously had and they were not quite clicking and then this piece is, was when it clicked and in the other ones i worked as hard but it's just like sometimes it just yeah. doesn't work i mean it goes to show there's not like really one way to do it yeah and exactly and then also this whole idea that you're reframing how you're thinking you're yeah. like you're self-aware as well which i think yeah, is really yeah, important totally. as a composer too too to be kind of aware of like, okay, what are your weaknesses? What are your strengths? Yeah. And yeah. to also like kind of make use of them too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I do like compose like pretty much every day, but I've been slowly realizing that maybe that's not coming from uh, like the most, like maybe like healthiest, like kind of like mindset in that sense. Um, and also like embracing everything that I'm interested in. It's also even like outside of music, I think that's another thing, kind of like how composition can become your whole thing. Right. And right. Whole of course. <laughs> yeah, and I think like that, again, that rat race mentality kind of like contributes to that. You need to do this to do this. And it's just like this thing that it just keeps going, this like, like treadmill of like things you have to do. And then it just, it, 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 really at least for me it, it got me into like a very particular mindset and i was like you know i again i did projects i feel like super happy with but i this year i'm trying to 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 approach it from a different perspective and i still have a little bit of that kind of like fomo i guess if like oh, it just feels weird to even though i'm still like writing a lot of music but it's slower than before and it yeah. just takes some time to adjust just, well, so i just don't know stay on the treadmill maybe don't put it on you know 8.0 yeah. put it on like 4.0 yeah exactly you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh you know 
I'm looking forward to hearing more yeah, of your yeah, stuff. Totally. Just maybe on the slower on the treadmill there. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for coming on. I appreciate that. Of course. That. No, thank you so much for having me. This is really fun.